Section 40 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 40, Chapter 70, Part 5. On them were bestowed the same inquisitorial powers possessed by the former Court of High Commission, that they might proceed upon bare suspicion. And the better to set the law at defiance, it was expressly inserted in their patent itself, that they were to exercise their jurisdiction, notwithstanding any law or statute to the contrary. The king's design to subdue the church was now sufficiently known, and had he been able to establish the authority of this new erected court, his success was infallible. A more sensible blow could not be given to both national liberty and religion, and happily the contest could not be tried in a cause more iniquitous and unpopular than that against Sharp and the Bishop of London. The prelate was cited before the commissioners. After denying the legality of the court, and claiming the privilege of all Christian bishops, to be tried by the Metropolitan and his suffragans, he pleaded in his own defense, that as he was obliged, if he had suspended Sharp, to act in the capacity of a judge, he could not, consistent either with law or equity, pronounce sentence without a previous citation and trial, that he had by petition represented this difficulty to his majesty and not receiving any answer, he had reason to think that his petition had given entire satisfaction, that in order to show further his deference, he had advised Sharp to abstain from preaching, till he had satisfied his conduct to the king, an advice which, coming from a superior, was equivalent to a command, and he had accordingly met with the proper obedience, that he had thus, in his apprehension, conformed himself to his majesty's pleasure, but if he should still be found wanting to his duty in any particular, he was now willing to crave pardon and to make reparation. All this submission, both in Sharp and the prelate, had no effect. It was determined to have an example. Orders were accordingly sent to the commissioners to proceed, and by a majority of votes the bishop, as well as the doctor, was suspended. Almost the whole of this short reign consists of attempts, always imprudent, often illegal, sometimes both, against whatever was most loved and revered by the nation. Even such schemes of the king's as might be laudable in themselves were so disgraced by his intentions that they serve only to aggravate the charge against him. James was become a great patron of toleration and an enemy to all those persecuting laws which, from the influence of the church, had been enacted both against the dissenters and Catholics. Not content with granting dispensations to particular persons, he assumed a power of issuing a declaration of general indulgence, and of suspending at once all the penal statutes by which a conformity was required to the established religion. This was a strain of authority, it must be confessed, quite inconsistent with law and a limited constitution, yet was it supported by many strong precedents in the history of England. Even after the principles of liberty were become more prevalent, 
and began to be well understood, the late king had, oftener than once, and without giving much umbrage, exerted this dangerous power. He had, in 1662, suspended the execution of a law which regulated carriages. During the two Dutch wars, he had twice suspended the act of navigation. And the commons, in 1666, being resolved, contrary to the king's judgment, to enact that iniquitous law against the importation of Irish cattle, found it necessary, in order to obviate the exercise of this prerogative, which they desired not at that time entirely to deny or abrogate, to call that importation a nuisance. Though the former authority of the sovereign was great in civil affairs, it was still greater in ecclesiastical, and the whole despotic power of the popes was often believed, in virtue of the supremacy, to have devolved to the crown. The last parliament of Charles I, by abolishing the power of the king and convocation to frame canons without consent of parliament, had somewhat diminished the supposed extent of the supremacy, but still very considerable remains of it, at least very important claims, were preserved, and were occasionally made use of by the sovereign. In 1662, Charles, pleading both the rights of his supremacy and his suspending power, had granted a general indulgence or toleration, and in 1672 he renewed the same edict, though the remonstrances of his parliament obliged him, on both occasions, to retract. And in the last instance the triumph of law over prerogative was deemed very great and memorable. In general, we may remark that, where the exercise of the suspending power was agreeable and useful, the power itself was little questioned. Where the exercise was thought liable to exceptions, men not only opposed it, but proceeded to deny altogether the legality of the prerogative on which it was founded. James, more imprudent and arbitrary than his predecessor, issued his proclamation, suspending all the penal laws in ecclesiastical affairs, and granting a general liberty of conscience to all his subjects. He was not deterred by the reflection, both that this scheme of indulgence was already blasted by two fruitless attempts, and that in such a government as that of England it was not sufficient that a prerogative be approved of by some lawyers and antiquaries. If it was condemned by the general voice of the nation, and yet was still exerted, the victory over national liberty was no less signal than if obtained by the most flagrant injustice and usurpation. These two considerations, indeed, would rather serve to recommend this project to James, who deemed himself superior in vigor and activity to his brother, and who probably thought that his people enjoyed no liberties but by his royal concession and indulgence. In order to procure a better reception for his edict of toleration, the king, finding himself opposed by the church, began to pay court to the dissenters, and he imagined that, by playing one party against another, he could easily obtain the victory over both, a refined policy which it much exceeded his capacity to conduct. His intentions were so obvious that it was impossible for him ever to gain the sincere confidence and regard of the nonconformist. They knew that the genius of their religion was diametrically opposite to that of the Catholics, the sole object of the king's affection. They were sensible that both the violence of his temper and the maxims of his religion 
were repugnant to the principles of toleration. They had seen that, on his accession, as well as during his brother's reign, he had courted the church at their expense, and it was not till his dangerous schemes were rejected by the prelates that he had recourse to the nonconformist. All his favors, therefore, must, to every man of judgment among the sectaries, have appeared insidious. Yet such was the pleasure reaped from present ease, such the animosity of the dissenters against the church, who had so long subjected them to the rigors of persecution, that they everywhere expressed the most entire duty to the king, and compliance with his measures, and could not forbear rejoicing extremely in the present depression of their adversaries. But had the dissenters been ever so much inclined to shut their eyes with regards to the king's intentions, the manner of conducting his scheme in Scotland was sufficient to discover the secret. The king first applied to the Scottish Parliament, and desired an indulgence for the Catholics alone, without comprehending the Presbyterians. But that assembly, though more disposed than even the Parliament of England to sacrifice their civil liberties, resolved likewise to adhere pertinaciously to their religion, and they rejected, for the first time, the king's application. James, therefore, found himself obliged to exert his prerogative, and he now thought it prudent to interest a party among his subjects, besides the Catholics, in supporting this act of authority. To the surprise of the harassed and persecuted Presbyterians, they heard the principles of toleration everywhere extolled, and found that full permission was granted to attend conventicles, an offence which, even during this reign, had been declared no less than a capital enormity. The king's declaration, however, of indulgence, contained clauses sufficient to depress their joy. As if popery were already predominant, he declared that he would never use force or invincible necessity against any man on account of his persuasion of the Protestant religion, a promise surely of toleration given to the Protestants with great precaution, and admitting a considerable latitude for persecution and violence. It is likewise remarkable that the king declared in express terms that he had thought fit, by his sovereign authority, prerogative royal, and absolute power, which all his subjects were to obey, without reserve, to grant this royal toleration. The dangerous designs of other princes are to be calculated by a comparison of their several actions, or by a discovery of their more secret counsels. But so blinded was James with zeal, so transported by his imperious temper, that even his proclamations and public edicts contain expressions which, without further inquiry, may suffice to his condemnation. The English well knew that the king, by the constitution of their government, thought himself entitled, as indeed he was, to as ample authority in his southern as in his northern kingdom, and therefore, though the declaration of indulgence published for England was more cautiously expressed, they could not but be alarmed by the arbitrary treatment to which their neighbors were exposed. It is even remarkable that the English declaration contained clauses of a strange import. The king there promised that he would maintain his loving subjects in all their properties and possessions, as well as of church and abbey lands, as of any other. Men thought that, if the full establishment of popery were not at hand, this promise was quite superfluous, 
and they concluded that the king was so replete with joy on the prospect of that glorious event that he could not even for a moment refrain from expressing it but what afforded the most alarming prospect was the continuance and even increase of the violent and precipitate conduct of affairs in ireland tyrconnel was now vested with full authority and carried over with him as chancellor one fitton a man who was taken from a jail and who had been convicted of forgery and other crimes but who compensated for all his enormities by a headlong zeal for the catholic religion he was even heard to say from the bench that the protestants were all rogues and that there was not one among forty thousand that was not a traitor a rebel and a villain the whole strain of the administration was suitable to such sentiments the catholics were put in possession of the council table of the courts of judicature and of the bench of justices in order to make them masters of the parliament the same violence was exercised that had been practised in england the charters of dublin and of all the corporations were annulled and new charters were granted subjecting the corporations to the will of the sovereign the protestant freemen were expelled catholics introduced and the latter sect as they always were the majority in number were now invested with the whole power of the kingdom the act of settlement was the only obstacle to their enjoying the whole property and tyrconnel had formed a scheme for calling a parliament in order to reverse that act and empower the king to bestow all the lands of ireland on his catholic subjects but in this scheme he met with opposition from the moderate catholics in the king's council lord balasus went even so far as to affirm with an oath that that fellow in ireland was fool and madman enough to ruin ten kingdoms the decay of trade from the desertion of the protestants was represented the sinking of the revenue the alarm communicated to england and by these considerations the king's resolutions were for some time suspended though it was easy to foresee from the usual tenor of his conduct which side would at last preponderate but the king was not content with discovering in his own kingdoms the imprudence of his conduct he was resolved that all europe should be witness to it he publicly sent the earl of castlemaine ambassador extraordinary to rome in order to express his obeisance to the pope and to make advances for reconciling his kingdoms in form to the catholic communion never man who came on so important an errand met with so many neglects and even affronts as castlemaine the pontiff instead of being pleased with this forward step concluded that a scheme conducted with so much indiscretion could never possibly be successful and as he was engaged in a violent quarrel with the french monarch a quarrel which interested him more nearly than the conversion of england he bore little regard to james whom he believed too closely connected with his capital enemy the only proof of complaisance which james received from the pontiff was his sending a nuncio to england in return for the embassy by act of parliament any communication with the pope was made treason yet so little regard did the king pay to the laws, that he gave the nuncio a public and solemn reception at Windsor. The Duke of Somerset, one of the bedchamber, because he refused to assist at this ceremony, 
was dismissed from his employment. The nuncio resided openly in London during the rest of this reign. Four Catholic bishops were publicly consecrated in the king's chapel, and sent out, under the title of vicars apostolical, to exercise the episcopal function in their respective dioceses. Their pastoral letters, directed to the lay Catholics of England, were printed and dispersed by the express allowance and permission of the king. The regular clergy of that communion appeared in court in the habits of their order, and some of them were so indiscreet as to boast that, in a little time, they hoped to walk in procession through the capital. While the king shocked in the most open manner all the principles and prejudices of his Protestant subjects, he could not sometimes but be sensible that he stood in need of their assistance for the execution of his designs. He had himself, by virtue of his prerogative, suspended the penal laws, and dispensed with the test. But he would gladly have obtained the sanction of Parliament to these acts of power, and he knew that, without this authority, his edicts alone would never afford a durable security to the Catholics. He had employed, therefore, with the members of Parliament, many private conferences, which were then called closetings and he used every expedient of reasons, menaces, and promises to break their obstinacy in this particular. Finding all his efforts fruitless, he had dissolved the Parliament, and was determined to call a new one from which he expected more complacence and submission. By the practice of annulling the charters, the king was become master of all the corporations, and could at pleasure change everywhere the whole magistracy. The church party, therefore, by whom the crown had been hitherto so remarkably supported, and to whom the king visibly owed his safety from all the efforts of his enemies, was deprived of authority, and the dissenters, those very enemies, were first in London, and afterwards in every other corporation, substituted in their place. Not content with this violent and dangerous innovation, the king appointed certain regulators to examine the qualifications of electors, and directions were given them to exclude all such as adhered to the test and penal statutes. Queries to this purpose were openly proposed in all places, in order to try the sentiments of men, and enable the king to judge of the proceedings of the future Parliament. The power of the crown was at this time so great and the revenue managed by James's frugality, so considerable and independent, that, if he had embraced any national party, he had been insured of success, and might have carried his authority to what length he pleased. But the Catholics, to whom he had entirely devoted himself, were scarcely the hundredth part of the people. Even the Protestant nonconformists, whom he so much courted, were little more than the twentieth, and, what was worse, reposed no confidence in the unnatural alliance contracted with the Catholics, and in the principles of toleration, which, contrary to their usual practice in all ages, seemed at present to be adopted by that sect. The king, therefore, finding little hopes of success, delayed the summoning of a parliament, and proceeded still in the exercise of his illegal and arbitrary authority. The whole power in Ireland had been committed to Catholics. In Scotland, all the ministers whom the king chiefly trusted were converts to that religion. 
every great office in england civil and military was gradually transferred from the protestants rochester and clarendon the king's brothers-in-law though they had ever been faithful to his interest could not by all their services atone for their adherence to the national religion and had been dismissed from their employments the violent jeffreys himself though he had sacrificed justice and humanity to the court yet because he refused also to give up his religion was declining in favor and interest nothing now remained but to open the door in the church and universities to the intrusion of the catholics it was not long before the king made this rash effort and by constraining the prelacy and established church to seek protection in the principles of liberty he at last left himself entirely without friends and adherents End of section 40, chapter 70, part 5. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N voice dot com.